It could have been a skit on Saturday Night Live. Or maybe even a dark comedy. A summer movie. It had all the elements. An eccentric, slightly crazy boss who came up with a plan that would never, could never work. Her boyfriend, who was reluctant to get involved and tried to talk her out of it. Not a good idea. Her fishing buddy, who egged her on. A shop teacher, who was good with electronics and explosives, but whose people skills left something to be desired. And one more person, a shy, trusting guy who loved his job delivering pizzas to hungry customers, but who had his own slightly dark side. This motley crew came together and said, let's rob a bank. This story sounds like it could work as cheap, mindless entertainment. A comedy of errors as an elaborate plot falls apart time and again. By the end of the movie, we might even be rooting for them, kind of like Ocean's Eleven, but without George Clooney. But it wasn't a skit or a movie. And they weren't lovable losers. They were psychopaths and drug dealers and deadly serious criminals. And in the end, at least two people were dead. And 18 years later, we still don't know the whole truth. So mix up a tequila sunrise and see if you can solve the mystery of Brian Wells, the pizza bomber. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was born and spent most of her life in Erie, Pennsylvania. Her mother, Agnes, was a well-loved and respected teacher. Her father, Harold, was a veteran of World War II and a businessman. Marjorie was very intelligent. She was a star in high school and went on to earn a master's degree in education. By her early 20s, though, her family and friends knew something was wrong. She began to have delusions of grandeur and mood shifts. She would constantly talk, rambling, shifting from one subject to another. One moment, she was discussing the work of Sylvia Plath and John Milton, and the next accusing her family and friends of plotting against her. She was a narcissist and a hoarder and eventually a murderer. In 1984, she was in a relationship with an abusive boyfriend who also suffered from mental illness. His name was Richard Thomas. One night, he was asleep on the couch. Marjorie got a gun and shot him six times. At first, she was found incompetent to stand trial and sent to a mental institution. But eventually, she was acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Her attorney later said that she never should have stood trial, that she should have been sent to a mental hospital for treatment for the rest of her life. It was only a matter of time before she did it again, he said. In the early 1990s, she married Richard Armstrong. A year and a half later, he died. In 2000, her mother died. She and her father disagreed about her inheritance. He ended up giving her $50,000 and refused to give her anything else because he didn't trust her. She thought her dad was worth millions and she was afraid he was going to spend her inheritance or give it away. It wasn't fair. It was her money. Something had to be done. 
She discussed it with her boyfriend, James Reardon, and her fishing buddy, named Bill Rothstein, and a TV repairman turned crack dealer named Ken Barnes. Would Ken help her, she wondered? Her dad had to die. Ken offered to take care of that problem. For a price. He would kill Harold Deal for $200,000. Marjorie, who was Harold's only child, stood to inherit his entire fortune, believed to be worth almost $2 million. So the money was no problem. Except, Ken wanted it up front. Where to get $200,000? From a bank, maybe. But they couldn't really go in and ask for a loan to pay a hitman. But they could steal it. And so, a plot was hatched. Barnes' roommate, Jay Stockton, was recruited to help. He was a felon, having been convicted of assaulting a disabled teenager a few years before. But they needed someone else. Additional help. And Marjorie knew just the man. An old boyfriend named Bill Rothstein. He was a handyman and a part-time shop teacher with a keen interest in robotics. But he wasn't exactly a people person. He was no stranger to intricate criminal plots, having helped a friend years earlier to obtain a handgun that the friend used to kill a rival for his girlfriend's affections. So now... The gang included four principals, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, James Reardon, Ken Barnes, and Bill Rothstein, and a junior partner, Jay Stockton. Their plan, they thought, was brilliant. Rothstein would build a bomb and they would attach the bomb to a person who would walk into a bank and demand $250,000. But who? Who would be crazy enough to wear a high-explosive bomb attached to their body? They needed just the right person. A person with just the right mixture of greed and naivete and daring. In other words, they needed a stooge. But where to find him? Ken Barnes had an acquaintance named Jessica Hoopsick, a sex worker. Barnes asked her if she knew of a patsy who might want to make some easy money. He outlined the plot, and she recommended one of her clients, a man named Brian Wells. Wells was a soft-spoken, easygoing man who loved his job. For 10 years, he had worked at Mamma Mia Pizza, delivering pies. He liked cars and was trying to build his own inside his own apartment, scavenging parts from junkers. So, the details were finalized. Barnes and Stockton would get Wells a gun and strap the bomb to his body. It would be attached to a metal collar that he wore around his neck. Not to worry, they told him. The bomb wasn't real, and it could serve as his alibi. If he was arrested, he could tell the officers that he had been attacked by three black men who attached the bomb to him, and he had no choice. At least, that's the official story the prosecution later presented at Marjorie's trial. Brian Wells' friends and family never believed it. They said that he was, in fact, an innocent pizza delivery driver who was randomly kidnapped and forced to help. According to the prosecution's theory, 
On April 28, 2003, Wells was dispatched to an address about two miles away from the pizza parlor near a television tower. When he arrived, Barnes and Stockton started to put the bomb on his body. They told him it wasn't fake, that it was in fact real, and he would have 55 minutes to complete the robbery and follow a series of clues, like a scavenger hunt. Each time he found a clue, that would extend the 55 minutes, and the last clue would finally tell him how to take off the metal collar and get rid of the bomb. He was reluctant to do this, obviously. So Barnes or Stockton punched him in the face, fired a gun, and convinced him that he would either do it or die right there. Barnes then gave him a rifle that had been modified to look like a cane. So, Brian Wells strolled into the bank and cut to the front of the line. A teller told him to wait his turn, but he produced a note telling her that he had a bomb. He told her to fill a case with $250,000 and then he casually took a sucker out of the bowl on the counter. A dum-dum sucker. Rather appropriate. He and the teller got into an argument. She said she didn't have access to that much money. It was in the vault, and the vault was on a timer. Wells said if he didn't get the money, the bomb would go off. She said the bank officers weren't there, and she just couldn't get that much money. Time was wasted. The clock was ticking. Finally, Wells said, well, just give me what you have. So she emptied her cash drawer, and Wells strolled out of the bank with $8,702. Sucking on his dum-dum and twirling his gun that was made to look like a cane, like Charlie Chaplin, and swinging the duffel bag with the money in the other arm. Someone followed Wells outside. This just doesn't look right. They called 911. Wells followed his first clue and drove to a McDonald's and found another clue under the sign. The police pulled up, confronted him, cuffed him, and sat him down in the parking lot. He told him his story that three black men had kidnapped him and put it on him and made him rob the bank. As he sat there, the clock ticked. Wells finally told the police, I'm wearing a bomb and it's going to explode in less than an hour. They told him to calm down. With each passing moment, he became more and more agitated. He asked them to at least remove the handcuffs so he could support the metal collar around his neck. It was heavy. He asked the police if they had called his work to tell them where he was. They told him not to worry about it. He asked if the bomb squad was coming. They said yes. And then suddenly, a light on the collar began to blink. Wells began to scream. And at last, the bomb squad did show up. But it was too late. Because three minutes earlier, the bomb went off, blowing a hole in Wells' chest and killing him instantly in front of television cameras. At the autopsy, the doctors couldn't remove the collar. They eventually had to cut off Wells' head to get it off. The plot began to unravel a month later when Rothstein called the police and informed them that he had a body in his freezer. Rothstein lived near the television tower, and the police had already been there to question him. He said he hadn't seen anything. But now he began to talk. The body is that of James Reardon, Rothstein said, and that's Marjorie Deal Armstrong's old boyfriend. Rothstein said Marjorie had killed him because she was afraid he was going to tell the police about their plans. 
Rothstein never did confess to being part of the plot, but he hinted that he may have at one time used the payphone that was used to lure Wells to the TV tower with the fake pizza delivery call. Rothstein died before he could be charged with any crimes. The next day, police charged Marjorie with Reardon's death. They transferred her to a state hospital for evaluation due to her bipolar illness. Eighteen months later, she is found competent to stand trial and pleads guilty to the third-degree murder of James Reardon. She denied any knowledge of the Wells matter, and she said she killed Reardon because he wasn't helping her investigate a break-in at their house. She is sentenced to 7 to 20 years. In 2005, the police interviewed Barnes for the first time. Over the next few months, he gives them details of the scheme and implicates Marjorie and Rothstein. He tells them that he and Rothstein and Stockton had met with Wells the day before the robbery to rehearse. The police also talked to Stockton and granted him immunity. On July 9, 2007, a federal grand jury indicted Marjorie and Ken Barnes on armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence. The jury also named the deceased Rothstein and the deceased Wells as unindicted co-conspirators. Again, Marjorie is found incompetent to stand trial and is sent to a hospital for evaluation. Barn pleads guilty and is sentenced to 45 years in prison. He agrees to testify against Marjorie and his sentence is reduced to 20 years. In 2009, Marjorie is finally found competent to stand trial again. But before the trial, she is diagnosed with cancer and given three to seven years to live. The U.S. attorney said that if her lifespan was going to be less than that, he might not have even bothered to go to trial, but he thought three to seven years would be long enough to get a conviction and send her to prison for a while. So they did go to trial. Marjorie took the stand in her own defense and denied having anything to do with the Wells killing. Other witnesses, however, claimed that she had told them all about it and, in fact, bragged about it. But she claimed that it was Rothstein's idea and that he and Barnes had conspired to frame her. The jury deliberates for 11 and a half hours and finds her guilty. She is sentenced to life plus 30 years with no possibility of parole. In a series of interviews over the next seven years, she maintained her innocence, again claiming that she was framed, and she died of breast cancer in a federal prison in Fort Worth in 2017. By that time, her father's estate was insolvent. She inherited no money from his death in 2014. Ken Barnes, her fishing buddy, had diabetes and he died in prison in 2019. Floyd Stockton left the area and reportedly now lives in Washington State. Jessica Hoopsink was later arrested again for her sex work and actually served time in jail. She was released from prison in 2020. After all this time, the parties who knew the whole story are all dead. But questions remain. Who was the mastermind of the plot? Bill Rothstein? Marjorie Deal Armstrong? Ken Barnes? Or someone else? Was Brian Wells a patsy? Or a willing participant? What do you think? Thank you, Dad. Wow, that one is a 
doozy. Yes, it is. I think the weirdest one we've done so far. For sure. I feel like it's one of the most entertaining, but it's still very sad, like they all are, because Brian Wells did lose his life. James Reardon. Yeah. All of Marjorie's boyfriends and husbands basically have yes. died. We'll get into that. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, I mean, not a good group of people here. No. And uh, <laughs> I would have to say not a very smart group of people either. Definitely not. I'm excited to discuss it. First, we have a fun trends of the crime section this week, and I'll tell you why it's fun. Do you know why it's fun? I'm guessing because it's about the fashions of the early 2000s, which are now coming back, and you personify those fashions. Bingo! How'd you know that? You heard me say it? No, I just know my daughter. And you're reading the outline. And I'm reading the outline <laughs> you wrote, yes. <laughs> well, uh, if, if you are ever on TikTok, listeners, you know that the kids today the kids today, this makes me feel sick. Like they think of the early 2000s, how I think of the 70s and 80s. And what would that be to you? Let's see. How you think of the 40s. 50s. 50s, 50s yes, 50s. 50s, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, crazy. Anyway, like they want to have lived in the early 2000s and 90s. It's, it's wild. But- Lucky for me, I did live in the early 2000s. This is the most nostalgic decade for me in my entire life. It is so fun. And uh, I found an article called The 2000s Fashion Trends Everyone Will Wear This Year by Anna Leplaka for whowhatwear.com. Here we go. Hair clips. I wear them. Tonal dressing. So that is the same as like monochromatic dressing. So a whole outfit that's pink. I've done that. Cargo pants. I did just buy a pair of cargo pants. Uh, I know you're all gasping and shocked. <laughs> I did it though. Bright orange too. I haven't worn them yet, but they're really cute. Tiny strap sandals. I just bought myself some of those. By the way, I bought all this before I read this article. It's pretty funny. Um, baguette bags. I keep getting ads for those on Facebook. Baggy jeans, I've been buying some of those. Leopard print, which, excuse me, that never went out of style and never will go out of style, so that one's annoying. Baby tanks and tees, yep, I've been buying those. Wedge mules, I don't have any of those, but those make me think of Legally Blonde. And lime green. Do you remember what color Allie's prom dress was and my prom dress? I'm going to guess lime green. Correct. Lime green. It's back. Well, I once had a sports coat. In fact, I still have it. That's lime green yep. with a black and white checked pocket. It's pretty cute, Dad. But I bought it in 1974. So the 70s came back to the thousand, 2000s. And here we are again. Next, I have a list of 2000s fashion icons that I compiled myself. Number one on the list is, of course, me. So I was an icon then, and I am an icon now. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> That's it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Next, we have Mary-Kate and Ashley, and I love them. Two of my chickens are named after Mary-Kate and Ashley. Now, are Mary-Kate and Ashley any relation to Elizabeth Olsen, who starred in <gasps> yes. that amazing series, uh, WandaVision? Yes. Uh, Elizabeth is the younger sister of Mary-Kate and Ashley, and WandaVision? Is my favorite show of the past 12 months. I liked it. It was amazing. Third, Lindsay Lohan. My personal, I don't want to say, I didn't look up to her personality-wise, but like every Lindsay Lohan movie on this earth, I have seen about 20 times. And I loved her. Next, Britney Spears. Hashtag free Britney. Again, get on TikTok if you don't know what I'm talking about. She's involved in an interesting court case right now. She is. The conservatorship, which Amanda Bynes, who is next on the list, is also in a conservatorship mm. with her parents. So that's interesting. Then we have Rihanna. Then Destiny's Child. And of course, we can't talk about early 2000s fashion without mentioning Paris and Nicole. 
And Paris has a really good Netflix documentary about her time at a troubled teen camp. And that's been in the news lately is about those troubled teen camps and how awful they are. That's all I have. Well, you've you've talked a lot about what you're buying and what women are wearing, but are uh, early 2000 fashions coming back for men as well? I don't think so, because for men, it was like, I I picture like the really baggy jeans and those aren't bad. Men's fashion seems to move a lot slower okay. than women's. So I don't have to go out and buy a new wardrobe like you do? No, of okay, course. Okay, good, no. good. You wouldn't anyway, so. Well, let's get into this con- okay. or, uh, case. But first, uh, what's the cocktail this week? Well, I struggled with this one. Uh, it's the pizza bomber case. So, of course, what goes with pizza? Beer. But I didn't think that uh, that our, our listeners and viewers would be that interested in watching me uh, pop the top on a can of Pabst and pour it in a glass. Uh, so I began to think, well, pizza's Italian. And we have done a number of Italian cocktails recently, the Negroni, the Black Negroni, or the Black Manhattan. Um, and I thought, you know, this is just a screwy case. It really doesn't make sense. So why should the cocktail make sense? So we're going to do a tequila sunrise just because I want to make one. I think they look cool. Uh, tequila sunrise has been around for about 30 years. It is uh, uh, tequila and orange juice with uh, some pomegranate syrup called grenadine that's just kind of poured right down the side of the glass so it settles at the bottom and uh, the drink just looks like the sunrise, you know, coming off the Pacific Ocean. The sunrise in Erie, Pennsylvania. There's your connection. Okay, good. Yes. That's the connection, people. We've done it. Speaking of Erie, Pennsylvania... I just thought, why not learn more about Mamma Mia's Pizzeria? Oh, good. Because I love pizza. I do, too. And I was curious if it was still open. Good news, it is open. So if you live in Erie, Pennsylvania, go try it. Uh, It has 4.4 stars on Google and 172 reviews. Not bad. Mm -hmm. I prefer 4.5 and above, but I would try a 4.4. They had been in that original location on Peach Street since 1980, but they had to move in 2019 due to a plaza fire, and they specialize in fresh dough pizza, homemade sauces, and house-made dressings. Did you happen to look at their website? I did. Do they happen to have a pizza named after uh, Brian Wells, or have they tried to make any... uh, get any publicity from the pizza bomber case or would they rather just um, not admit they were associated with it at all i'm looking at the menu now they did not talk about it on the about page because i was looking for that nope they probably don't even want to yeah no it's sad for 10 years brian wells worked there and delivered pizza not even a not even an appetizer named after him I'm guessing it's a new owner. Sad. Poor Brian. It was probably his dream. Something else I thought found very interesting about this case was the collar bomb. Mm -hmm. What the heck? How weird. And I found that they've only been known to have been used by Colombian drug lords in turf wars. Like, aside from this case, that's who uses collar bombs. Hmm. So how did they think of that? I guess because he wouldn't be able to get it off. Yeah, I I didn't find any information about how they how they thought of that, but uh, yeah, that's it all was I quite thought. an engineering feat. I'm sure they had to, to build it. They said that uh, that Wells actually came and sat down for a fitting about a week before the uh, a week before the the robbery. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, if you believe that he was a willing participant and and didn't find out until the last minute that it was real, uh, you know, that's uh, that's how they got it. That's how they got it to fit around him, I guess, is uh, he just sat down and and uh, let him do a model. Oh, my gosh. There's no way I'd let anyone put a fake bomb on me. 
That was all I found. I didn't find anything about the reason why they did it, uh, but I did find a description about how it was made or what it was made of. So it was made up of a triple blended metal collar with four keyholes, a three-digit combination lock, and an iron box containing two six-inch pipe bombs loaded with double-based smokeless powder. I think that's what it said. And the collar locked around Wells's neck looked like a giant handcuff. Mm-hmm. Think how heavy that must have been. I know. I know, right? When the police cuffed him and sat him down before he realized time was running out, he was asking him if they could just take him out of the handcuff so he could support the collar with his hands because it was pressing down on his shoulders and really, really hurting him. Mm-hmm. And just imagine if you were in that bank and you saw him walking in, like he had a box under his shirt and he had a cane gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the shotgun. He was walking around with a cane that was actually a shotgun. And he his shirt had the hand had guess handwritten on it. I think it said something else too, but I couldn't read it. Like a white t-shirt with handwritten guess on it. And he just goes up to the counter. And apparently he was pretty calm in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh and then something I found that was interesting was the bank's code word for robbery was Audrey. So the teller yelled Audrey, and that's how everyone knew, how the tellers knew it was a robbery. Oh, I didn't know that. I that's... feel like that's a smart code word. Yeah, it is. Because you could just be yelling for Audrey. Mm-hmm. Pretty smart. Yeah. Yeah, That that's one of the other things that, that makes me wonder about uh, Wells and the people who say he was just a patsy and didn't know. Uh, looked like he had rehearsed this, and he was pretty calm mm-hmm. uh, about it. Mm-hmm. Which Until, again, but on the other hand, that's a little strange because they had told him it's a real bomb. But uh, he just strolled in very nonchalantly and strolled out nonchalantly. I feel like he, he thought, knowing it was real, I think he really thought he was going to get to the end and it was going to come off. Yeah. Which yeah. I'll get to it later, but I don't think they were ever going to oh, take no, it off. No. That's how he was going to die. Yeah. The collar bomb was clearly made with professional tools, and someone who knew what they were doing made the collar bomb. In 2007, a grand jury agreed that William Rothstein, or Bill Rothstein, had dumped over 1,000 pounds of evidence in a local landfill. So, like, 1,000 pounds of materials that he used to make this collar bomb. Right, probably the tools and the scrap metal and the rest of the chemicals. Yeah, he Mm -hmm. got rid of all that stuff. And uh, the FBI put together a behavioral profile of the collar bomber, and it's a perfect combination of Rothstein and Deal Armstrong. Mm-hmm. So their profile was a hoarder, which both of them were hoarders, comfortable with shop machines and power tools, Rothstein, because he was a part-time shop teacher and a handyman, had access to work with these tools alone, Rothstein, took pride in their creations, Rothstein. A violent past, Deal Armstrong, very violent, Mm -hmm. and a superiority complex, also Deal Armstrong. Right. She had, uh, she had one at one point during an interview talked about the fact that she was bipolar. She didn't deny that, but she compared herself to all the other great people who were bipolar: Beethoven, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Lincoln, Churchill, uh, Van Gogh. So she she really thought she was something. Oh, my gosh. What a weirdy. What a scary lady. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. If I ever met her, I would never tell her, like, where I lived or what I did. Yeah, and she had a way. It seemed like she could really manipulate people yeah. into doing what she wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. But, again, you look at these other people at part of this plot, they were all, uh, I guess you'd call it socially inept. A lot of them didn't have a lot of uh, high opinion to themselves. Uh, so she was smart. She probably knew how to get people to do what she wanted. Mm-hmm. I want to know why, why the police weren't more concerned that there was a bomb around his neck. Well, I don't know. They, uh, they didn't seem to rush to right. get their bomb squad there. Uh, afterwards, the ATF and the police said that... Uh, 
they thought their timing was appropriate. But uh, I just wonder if they believed it. That's what I think. Because, I again, it just uh, just think about this, that you see some guy walking down the street, going to McDonald's. With a cane gun. With a cane gun, <laughs> twirling it around like Charlie Chaplin. I My guess is they thought this this is just crazy. It's not a bomb. Showed them. Well, and on the there's a Netflix documentary series called Evil Genius, and it starts off, and it's about this case. It's four parts. It's really good. It starts off with the news footage of mm-hmm. uh, Brian Wells, and I'm sitting there watching. I know nothing about it. They're saying it's bomber on the like I'm, of course, thinking we're not going to see him explode. <laughs> sure did. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like I, you see him explode. It's like, you see his you see his eyes go back, you see the whites of his eyes, and then it's like smoke and he falls back because he's on his knees on the ground. And it I went <gasps> like it scared me. I did not think they would show it, but I mean that's what everyone saw who was watching the news. Yeah. Well, actually, as I read it, they didn't show it live. Oh, okay. Um, because there was a glitch. Not they wouldn't have, but there was a glitch. But then somebody at the news station leaked it to a, a tabloid who immediately posted it online. So uh, my guess is we could probably find it right now if we wanted to. It's probably still out there on Well, it's on Netflix. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it scared me. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not what you expect. Yeah. It's not like in a movie when a building blows up. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. Mm -hmm. But it's still scary and horrifying. Yeah. I want to talk more about the conspirators, I guess. Okay. Because there's some stuff about Rothstein and Deal Armstrong that you didn't go into. And I'm sure because, I mean, obviously Netflix dedicated like six hours to these people. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot about them. Bill Rothstein was engaged to Marjorie two times. Why? I do not know. Because uh, she's cray. And he was a hoarder and a handyman and a part-time shop teacher. And he was part of a group called the Fractured Intellectuals, which is a group of intelligent people who were not well-adjusted. Now, is this like a... I was just going to ask you. Is this just like a term that people use? Or did some of these guys get together and say, hey, we're the Fractured Intellectual (laughs) Bowling Team? I think it's it's just a term. Okay. But the way Wikipedia put it, it was like a book club. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, they have a... Wait, they have a Facebook group. I'm not joking. Okay. There's only one post. Okay. So I think someone did that. Yeah. For fun. I think it's a term. Less than a month after the collar bomb incident, Bill called the police and said there was a frozen body in the freezer in his garage. Well, he didn't say it was his garage. He gave them his address, but they knew it was his house. And he said he was storing it as a favor for a friend. And the favor was for Marjorie because she killed her boyfriend. And Rothstein agreed to hide the body because they had been engaged twice. And they always kind of had this thing, you know, they were like best friends and past lovers and all this stuff. Do you think Rothstein always felt also felt that if he didn't do it, he might end up in uh, another freezer somewhere? Uh, I sure would. At that point, I'd do anything that lady wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. Jeez. But he did go against her because he called the police. Once Marjorie suggested, he put the rest of Reardon's body into an ice grinder. (laughs) What? Ew. So he felt so guilty about this before he called the police that he contemplated suicide and he even wrote a note. And the note started that the police found when they went over to his house, but he was still alive. Because he died of cancer shortly after. But it started with, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. That's like saying, don't look at that chair. Right. Yeah. Now, they'd already talked to him about the Wells case. He probably thought, well, this is just a clever way to let them know it's not. But like you said, I mean, if I'm I'm the investigator and I see this, I'm thinking, well, okay. (laughs) It's probably about the Wells case. Let's dig a little deeper here. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, Bill, in a way, got kind of lucky because he died uh, before all of this got mm-hmm. connected. Uh, 
lucky in air quotes, but uh, someone, I, I think it was an FBI agent or maybe a DA, is really adamant that Bill Rothstein was the mastermind behind this whole thing. I mean, they know, they pretty much know that he made the bomb. Yes. But some people think he was like the one who thought of all of this and brought it all together. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I could, I could certainly, I think Marjorie was the mastermind, but she probably went to him and said, how could we do it? He may have come up with a whole bomb idea. I could see that. Yeah. Um, but I, my guess is if he had never met Marjorie, uh, there wouldn't have been a, a collar bomb around poor uh, Brian Wells' neck. Mm-hmm. And Marjorie, I understand, gave him the the timers that were used yes. on the bomb. She did supply the two kitchen timers for the bombs, for the two pipe bombs. Speaking of Marjorie. Oh, yes. Let's, let's talk more about let's. her. She suffered from multiple mental illnesses, including bipolar disorder, paranoia, and narcissism. She and she seems to have likely been a serial killer. Yes. She uh she liked to kill men. For sure. Yes. Uh <laughs> I'm thinking praying mantis here. Yes, yes. She mates with them, she kills them. Uh-huh. Um she she was a great student, very charismatic, and earned a, a master's degree before her mental health deteriorated in her 20s. Her home was full of dog feces clothes, and fast food cartons. It was so bad that the police had to wear hazmat suits when they went in. Ooh. Um, you know, if that TV show hoarders. about the hoarders would have just been on, maybe somebody could have reported her and, and you know, they could have gone in and none of this would none have happened. None of this would have happened. Yes. <laughs> Because it's all directly linked to her hoarding. Yes. And, and, you know, and of course, reality TV is all is about real. saving people. Yes. Yes. It's real. And they really want to help the world. Yes. Yes. So we know about James Reardon. Poor, poor James mm-hmm. in, the, in the freezer who, who lucked out and didn't have to go in the ice grinder. Yes. Because of really nice Bill Rothstein. You know, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking Fargo here. And uh, the wood chipper. Yes. Uh-uh. Gross. Luckily, one of them had somewhat of a conscience. Uh, so there was James. But before James, there was Robert Thomas, the mm-hmm. abusive boyfriend, mm-hmm. who she, whom she shot six times in the back while he was sleeping on the couch in 1984. Mm-hmm. Now, she said it was self-defense. Does that work if the person is sleeping and you shoot them not one time, but six times? Well, there is a defense out there that, that people have used when they, uh, you know, when they have been victims of abuse and uh, they feel the only way to protect themselves is to kill the abuser. And uh, what some people would term cold, cold-blooded murder, uh, you know, some juries have agreed that it's self-defense. I mean, if you can present enough case that I didn't have anything else I could have possibly done, I had to kill him when he was asleep. Well, but you can do they that it. if you shoot them six times, because that's a lot. Like, wouldn't that be overkill? I guess, but it must have worked. She She's must a have charmer. A, she must have had a good lawyer. I guess. Well, and and she also had two other men die pretty suspiciously. Mm-hmm. Her husband and several other partners died. Her first husband hung himself, and the second died from hitting his head on the coffee table. Hmm. But how did he hit his head on the coffee table? I don't know. Perhaps she she sneezed so violently that she accidentally pushed him? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. And, uh... Marjorie claimed, of course, that she had nothing to do with the the bomb thing, of course. Mm-hmm. But informants said that she talked about the bomb in intimate detail because pretty sure she and Bill designed it together. Right. I, I did read that, that one of the symptoms of her particular uh, mental illness, of bipolar, is uh, what they call pressure talking. 
Mm. He just continually talked from one subject to the other with, without even taking a breath. Just, you know, one minute it's, it's literature and silver plath, and the next minute it's art, and the next minute it's a collar bomb, and the next minute it's a fast food restaurant. Um, one of the, I think it was one of her attorneys said that uh, he was with her for three hours one time, and he might have only said three or four words because she just wouldn't stop. So I could certainly see her getting on a roll and just talking and probably not even knowing what she's saying. Mm -hmm. But at some point, it comes out that, yeah, she knew all about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's clear. And and a DA who went to high school with her, it wasn't the main DA on the case that'll come up later, but a different one, said that she was one of those people who just thought she was smarter and slicker and brighter than everyone else. And he said she's been that way for 40 years. Mm Mm-hmm. So I can see her like just talking and talking and talking and trying to be the smartest in the room. And yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. Yeah. A fellow inmate told authorities that Deal Armstrong admitted to killing James Reardon because he was going to expose the bomb plot. Of course, she said it's because their house had been broken into and he wasn't helping her uh, investigate it. Right. With enough fervor, so she killed him. So I should kill you then. Yes. <laughs> I think this reason makes a lot more sense. Yes, I do too. How did she even come up with that? I don't know. <laughs> Someone broke in and he wouldn't investigate it. So I killed him. <laughs> I don't like to argue. I just like to shoot. So <sighs> Ken Barnes is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. He was the most cooperative. And I actually didn't know that he died. Because mm-hmm. when I watched the Netflix show, he had not died yet. He died in 2019. Okay. Died in prison. Never made it. Probably made a little bit more money in okay. his, in his uh, second career. That means that she was paid for sex and Barnes let him use her house to entertain her clients. Okay. Well, uh, so she connected those two then. That was that that was the that was the connection. Right. That uh, and then Barnes knew Deal Armstrong. Right. As he went fishing with her. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know they found a, they found some paper they found a notebook in Wells' home with with Jessica's name in it, right? Because evidently they had a, a standing date, as it were. And he thought, in his mind, it was a relationship. Yes, an expensive relationship. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was very expensive. Just so everyone knows, you don't usually have to pay for a relationship. Yes, so. <laughs> when when she was arrested in uh, 2018. Um, must have been right after the, you know, her Netflix interview, but, uh, uh, she was, uh, she was out with a friend and a a gentleman came by and asked if, uh, she'd party with him. And she said, yes. And he asked how much it would be. And it was, uh, $250 an hour for, for two hours. So she was not a cheap date. Unfortunately, the man that asked her that question was a police officer. Going to ask. <laughs> Undercover cop? Yes. yes. Okay. Hey, she knows her worth. She does. That's good. Barnes spoke too freely about the collar bomb incident, and his brother-in-law turned him in while Barnes was already in jail for unrelated drug charges. Yeah, can't just go around talking about that stuff. You really can't, but people do. Especially when it's, you know, on international news mm-hmm. so uh barnes and deal armstrong had also been seen driving the wrong way on the highway near one of the locations of the search the wrong way the story is that that he and deal armstrong were uh try- basically hiding with a pair of binoculars to try to see where uh where Brian was after he left the bank. So they were essentially just driving around trying to keep their eye on him. 
Now, Deal Armstrong denied that, said she, in fact, she went out with the police um, later and drove around and, and was able to tell them every place she had been on that day of the day of the robbery, or in her mind, or, and she said she had never been there, but who knows? Who knows? Bud Barnes said they had they had gone around together. Barnes told the police that he would exchange information for a reduced sentence and said Deal Armstrong was the mastermind. And in fact, he did get, he bought 20, mm-hmm. 25. 25 years, bought 25 years Smart. with his testimony. Right. Of course, he never got out of jail, but. But he almost made it. He almost did. Eight years shy. He would have just been six years away now. Mm-hmm. I added Brian Wells to this list because I personally believe he started as a willing participant and then got surprised. Yeah, I do too. And I, was betrayed. I think it's a no-brainer. Yeah. So people think that he was a willing participant. We said this earlier because he was so calm during the robbery. Uh, there was also no evidence to back up that Wells is to back up Wells's story that he was attacked by a group of black men. Right. They, uh, police did go out and they, they had a suspect actually, uh, a black man who was a suspect and they immediately hauled him in, had to release him shortly thereafter because they realized he had nothing to do with it. Was that before they connected all these dots? I'm guessing it was the, I think it was like the day after the robbery. Okay. So the DA on the case, I guess, I don't know how that works. It was a woman. I can't remember her name, but she thought that Deal Armstrong and Barnes planned on taking the robbery money as soon as Brian robbed the bank, but they fled when they saw the cops and they left him for dead. Yeah, I also read part of the plan, you know, the the notes they gave him, Mm -hmm. the scavenger hunt was to take him out of town, out into the country. Where he would blow where, up. Where the bomb would go off, and then they could just grab the money then. Mm. But um, why, why they didn't realize that somebody's going to call the police, and they're going to follow some guy in a white T-shirt with a cane and a duffel bag. And a box and they on might, his chest. And they <laughs> might just stop him before he had a chance to go collect a bunch of clues around town. Right. Again, not really well thought out. Uh-huh. Exactly. So I think whenever we use the term mastermind, maybe we should use air quotes around that. Mastermind. Yes, I agree. Do it with me, everyone. I'm just kidding. Uh, The DA believes that Brian was part of the operation and given the collar bomb for an alibi, like Dad said. The collar bomb would also ensure Brian's participation, and if things went wrong, he would not live to be a witness against the other conspirators. That's low. What a low Mm -hmm. blow. Uh, Barnes claimed that Wells was talking about the robbery about a month before it happened. Mm-hmm. So he, he was in on this plan. Uh, yeah. Well, in on his side of the plan. Yeah. And, and as I said, there's also testimony that he actually rehearsed it and went through the whole thing, sat for a fitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Wells was actually officially charged for being a conspirator and his sisters were not happy about it. They, they stood up and called the DA a liar. Mm-hmm. In court when she was doing this. Barnes said that Wells was willing to help with the promise of money because he was in an expensive relationship with sex worker Jessica Hoopsick. And he agreed to wear the bomb because he thought it was fake. He thought it was meant to fool the cops. If caught, he would blame the threatening instructions. He obviously thought it was fake until he was told mm-hmm. it's real at gunpoint. Yeah, well, I'm sure he needed the money. I mean, if in 2018, Jessica was charging $250 an hour, I mean, well, probably in 2003, she was probably, you know, at least 175 mm-hmm. an hour. And that's a lot of tips for delivering pizzas. Right. And he was probably in love. So, you know, the DA said that over time, Wells went from a co-conspirator to an unwilling participant. He had been double-crossed. And the FBI believes that the bomb was going to go off regardless and that Wells' death was part of the bigger plan. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Yes. And they just didn't tell him that. So Wells' family still believes 
that he was 100% a victim in this. They believe he did not know these people. What I want to know, though, is I heard in the stuff that I was looking at that the that a, a guy answered the phone at the pizza place, mm-hmm. couldn't understand the address, and gave the phone to Brian Wells. But I've also heard that Brian Wells was like, oh, I'll take that delivery. Like he volunteered to take it. So I don't Mm -hmm. know which happened. But if he just happened to take the call, then he wouldn't have been involved. But he had to have been involved. Oh, I think. Yeah, I'm sure he was. Yeah. So I think he probably volunteered to take it. Oh, yeah. And there was another guy who worked at that pizza place. Did you see this? Who killed a drug overdose. Right. He OD'd. Yeah. And some people have tried to find a connection, but they can't find any connection. I don't think there's a connection there. Just something weird. And mm-hmm. maybe that's when the Mama Mia Mia Pizzeria got a new owner because people just can't. Maybe. Bad luck. They were struck with a bad luck stick. Yeah. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. Kenneth Barnes, 45 years, but reduced to 20 for cooperating with authorities and admitting involvement. And Bill Rothstein, who avoided all charges because he died in 04. So Marjorie was sentenced to life in prison plus 30, but she actually did what? About six. Yeah. Barnes got uh, 20 years and did about. The teens, probably. Yeah, he did about 13, 14. Now, lastly, I, like usual, I'm going to talk about where this case has been in the media. America's Most Wanted featured this case three times in hopes to provide the authorities with new clues, like to figure out if Brian was involved or not. That's the real cold case aspect of this. Was he involved? Uh, A January 2011 issue of Wired magazine featured the story. There is a book called Pizza Bomber, the untold story of America's most shocking bank robbery by investigator Jerry Clark and journalist Ed Palatella, and of course, Netflix's Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist, released in May 2018, and I would highly recommend it. I was on the edge of my seat. Well, so we're on the same page. He was involved, but was double-crossed. We are. I was uh, talking to one of my friends earlier and and said we were going to be doing the Pizza Bomber episode, and he replied how... how, um, I, he always just felt so sorry for this poor guy that got duped into this. And I said, well, you might want to listen to the episode because mm-hmm. I don't think that's how it came down. I mean, I think, unfortunately, we'll just say Brian Wells was an easy one to trick. Yes. And it's really sad. Yes. I mean, I think in a way he was a victim. Mm-hmm. But And it, it's sad to me that he was tricked into this. But he knew. I mean... He knew he was going to rob a bank, and that's really bad. You should never rob a bank. So, Were you able to find any other information about him as far as his educational background? Did he ever graduate from school? Was he? They go into that on the Netflix show and, uh, and how he wasn't the most intelligent. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Uh, he dropped out of high school and went to work as a mechanic. That's what I dropped thought. Dropped out sophomore year. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I, I he he was not a it's not a sophisticated criminal. Well, still a wild wild story, and I'm happy we finally did it because yes. I've been wanting to do this one for a while. It was I I I hadn't I I remember hearing about it now, but when you said pizza bomber, I had no idea what you were talking about. Right, it's but fun. Yeah, isn't this it? is uh, this is this is very interesting. Mm-hmm. So yes, next week we are bringing it back to good old Kansas. Not Kansas City, but Wichita, Kansas. We are covering BTK. Dun, Mm. dun, dun. It should be a good one. You guys don't want to miss it. He's probably the most notorious Kansas serial killer ever, right? Mm, By far. Yeah. Yep. And there's a fun little, uh, there's a fun little breakoff case from this that I'll talk about in the discussion. So definitely don't want to miss it. Well, thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week. Thank you. Bye. See you later. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion.
If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.